0: Hey, you found us. Welcome to Comfortably Uncomfortable, Not Another Running Story. I'm Megan Fanning, and I'm joined by Sean Meehan. We created this podcast to continue the real conversations that we have when we get outside to run, bike, surf, climb, or whatever it is that you do. We love the real conversations when boundaries come down, because really, that's when it gets interesting. Welcome to the podcast. This one was difficult for us to record. Over the, you know, course of the year, since we've been doing this podcast, we've talked about the bike crash that happened to me a few years ago and mentioned it in passing. We've mentioned some details, but I've never told the entire story. So that's what's going to happen today. That's what we're talking about. You know, slight trigger warning. um, If you are struggling with PTSD, um, chronic pain, medical trauma, emotional trauma, just listen to this carefully or don't listen to it all or listen to it when you're in a safe place. But just wanted to give you a heads up. Also, this is going to be a two-part podcast. This is part one and part two will air two weeks after this podcast drops. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, Sean. Hey, Megan. How are you doing this morning? Good so far? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's good. What are we? What are we gonna? Let's just dive right into it, Meg. What are we gonna talk about today?
0: I don't know. You're in charge today. I I am letting go. I'm acquiescing. Um, letting go and letting God. Well, uh, then if you're God, then that's what I'm doing today. I'm letting go and letting God, aka okay. Sean. Actually, that goes back to what episode? The cult episode. I wish that's I knew the too. number in my head. <laughs> Mister Sean, you will. Mister Sean.
1: <laughs> the rest of
0: the episode oh my god that was so funny because if you haven't heard that episode on cults please go back and listen it it was a good one um after that discussion and after the promo video I posted online there was somebody who thought I was actually serious and really seeking that kind of advice from you um and letting sure. you rule well letting you rule my world with. With your insanity. I, you know, maybe I need to just let go and join the Sean cult. Maybe I would be. Maybe I would be happy.
1: I mean, life becomes simple if you let someone else dictate all.
0: Well, I suppose that depends on who's doing the dictating. But anyway. It's
1: still, still simple if you don't have to make choices, right?
0: Okay. Well, today I'm making no choices. I am turning it over to Mr. Sean. I'm making healthy
1: choices today all right man <laughs> so let's get into it so okay let's on do this, this podcast at several different pretty much every time we talk on this podcast at some point the the fact that you are and have been overcoming an injury due to a bike accident has Been brought up almost, like I said, in almost every podcast. So, why don't we start with how did you have a bike accident? When did it happen? Like, what were, what was your planning going into this? And we'll we'll start there, and then we can.
0: Well, I think it might actually have been your fault because I was supposed to ride with you that day. Remember?
1: I don't know if you were supposed to ride with me that day. I mean, I know. So in (laughs) in this was. I don't even remember, it's legitimate. 2000, 2016. Okay, 2016.
0: It was June 28th,
1: 2016. And um, you, in your training plan, mind, said you take two weeks, once a year, to essentially. Um, one, yeah, one. To beat the hell out of yourself, Um, and that's, and that's what you were doing. You took a week, you were taking a week mm-hmm. off to beat the shit out of yourself. So
0: well <laughs> yeah. So um I had just finished um you know I think maybe a week or so prior, two weeks, I can't remember, um, the infinitus 72 hour race when they had they used to have a 72 hour race and a 48 and a 24, I think. Um so I'd finished the 72 hour race and you were with me for that one. Um and a couple, so a couple weeks later, however long it was, yeah, I plan a training week and yeah, and I just sort of get myself ramped up for what I was doing next. And I was training for a 100 and at the same time I wanted to do an Ironman, a uh, full Ironman within the next month. So that was my goal. And I was ideally training for Lake Placid. Um, And it was, you know, it was summertime. So, you know, I... I was able to juggle the time, and I had dropped my daughter off at off at camp. and um, I did a run um at winding trails, you know where i drop where I drop her off, and that's in Farmington. really, you know, relatively, you know, relatively easy run. And I think you and I had talked, and we were tentatively going to get together for a bike ride later that day so I get back home I get something to eat I get cleaned up and um and I tried to reach out to you or you tried to reach out to me I don't even remember what happened but we never ended up connecting so I was like okay Sean doesn't want to ride no big deal um and I went out for a bike ride and later that day this is I was doing CrossFit um a lot at that time I was planning on going to a CrossFit class, um, I think early evening. So I thought to myself, and this is why I thought it'd be good to ride with you. I was like, yeah, you know, I just want a fun road ride just to shake out my legs after the run that I had done in the morning. So, um, so maybe I'm trying to think of the route I was on. It would have been under 20 miles. I mean, maybe just under 20 miles. It was an out and back you know that I that I regularly did and so I got to my halfway point um riding back I think I was probably less than 2 miles away from my house and this this spot in the road, there had been construction going on for quite a while. And I kind of liked going through this section because with the construction, there was always, you know, people there directing traffic. And then when I came through on my bike, they would stop traffic for me, which I thought was kind of nice. Um, but the crew wasn't there today and they had done their cleanup. So I'm riding down just a slow, gradual hill. I see the construction zone, I move around the cones, and I was probably going, not fast, but maybe under, anywhere between 10 to 15 miles an hour, and there was a piece of debris left in the road. So my front tire hit that debris, and it really, it turned very quickly at a, like a 90 degree angle to my frame, and what happened was I was thrown up and over the handlebars, and from there I landed on my right side, um, sort of like on my forearms and on my hips. I did have a helmet on. Um, my helmet was definitely, definitely cracked and damaged, and big gouge um, taken out of it. And I fell. <laughs> it hurt real bad. (laughs) And my bike is in the middle of the road. I'm in the middle of the road. And this was not a super busy road, but enough that a car was going to come through. So I tried to get up and my body felt like, um, my body kind of felt like wet spaghetti. My legs wouldn't really move. Um, I couldn't get my back to move. So I had to get out of the road. So I just sort of low-crawled Excuse me. I low crawled over to the side of the road just so I wouldn't get hit by a car and just left my bike in the middle of the road. Um so yeah, so that's what happened. That's that's the initial crash. And you know, we we do talk about this a lot because it's changed my life and my training so dramatically, but I think that whenever we talk about this on the podcast or whenever if if I ever have to tell anybody the story in real life, I tell the story with a separation. Like, I'll be like, Oh, yeah, I broke my hips and my back and blah, blah, blah. You know, I kind of just run through it and keep it at a keep it at a very high level. And I think the reason you can tell me your thoughts, but one of the reasons I think that it's important to talk about this is because lots of people have trauma. I have trauma. Um, You know, and trauma can be physical, you know, it can be emotional, it can be based, you know, based in, you know, neglect. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen to us as humans and yeah, life's, life's freaking hard, right? But when we can share, when we can share, and this is what we do on the podcast, I think we share our experience, strength and hope. So like anybody else that has gone through you know, it could be, could be a car accident. It could be a bike accident. It could be, you know, skiing. It could be abuse. Like trauma does not have to be the end, right? It doesn't mean that you have to curl up and die and acquiesce, um, for the rest of your life, but moving through that, moving through that's pretty challenging.
1: So I think the importance of discussing this, um, is that you get to see? I'm getting all choked up over here, Megan. Um, is you get to see how the initial effect, right? Like whatever that is, you get to see the growth, the change, the perception change, the acceptance of the perception change, the acceptance of the physical change. And I get, and I think. A lot of people, when they have a perception of themselves, has something, right? And we talk about this a little bit on the podcast, like I'm runner Sean, or I'm father Sean, or I'm whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that, that changes in your life and how do you grow and accept and change your mindset and your relationship with the world that you kind of are a different person than you were prior to whatever the event is or whatever the change is that like that you identified as a part of your being when it's just like I said, it's just a part, but at a certain point, it feels like it's a major part and then it's kind of taken away from you and changed.
0: That's why this is so hard. I mean, the the injuries and and I'll, you know, I can go back to, you know, to what happened, but I can, I can talk to you and just tell you, oh, this happened and that happened and la la la. And, but the, the real hard part is in the vulnerability about losing that piece of my identity. I mean, I, you know, I think my, the first race I ever did, I was six years old. And so being an athlete and being super competitive has always been a part of my life. And so from t- 2016 till 2000 today or, t- or 2023 today, that was kind of taken away from me or the foundation changed. And so that's what, you know, that's what makes it really hard. Um, so I'll I'll finish the, the what happened story. So I low crawl over to the side of the road and... Um, a young girl stops and she says do you need help and i'm like um, yes cuz i didn't have i mean my cell phone was in my back pocket my jersey but it got shot across somebody's yard <laughs> you know so i couldn't i couldn't call anybody and i said yes please call 911 i can't move so so she calls 911 and this this piece always strikes me as interesting first i have to say that i found out a couple weeks later that this girl that stopped and was super kind to me was the stepdaughter of one of our athletes and a woman that that I'd been working with. So definitely a small world. So she sat with me, she called 911. And then a couple other people stopped. And I'm gonna say they were like, they were a couple men. And I call them like dad, like, I could not really see them. All I could see was like from the waist down. And they remained 10 to 20 feet away from me while this 16 year old girl just sat and held space with me and i really learned a lot that day because i could see by the way those men were standing that something was really wrong okay i could they they looked <laughs> this their their body language they looked really scared but she just sat next to me and she said i'm just going to get your bike out of the road you know and just you know so there isn't another accident so she went and got my bike out of my road out of the road and she sat with me until 911 came um, when nine one one came, she said, um, she said, you know, you're gonna be okay, you're in good hands. I'm gonna grab your bike and just take it to my house. Um, well, I'll figure out how to reach you, you know, at some point, and I'll get your bike back to you. So she ended up leaving. I don't know what happened to the group of dads that were standing off to the side, but this is when it started to get really ugly. Um, and as a paramedic, you know, I know, the procedure of what happens when you come up to somebody on the side of the road. Um and this this young girl had been really holding space for me. So she just kept me safe. That was it. We weren't talking about the accident. We weren't talking about anything really. It was just like, okay, you know, they're they're on their way. This is you're gonna be all right. But as soon as EMS got there, I knew things were bad by, you know, they tried to get an IV in me, and they couldn't because um, because I was in shock. They went through a number of pain medications. Um, they, it just simply didn't work. You know, I've learned in, in retrospect, because I've been through so many surgeries, I call it my redheaded witchy metabolism, and I have a phenomenal tolerance to some drugs, a lot of painkillers, and have a huge sensitivity to some other drugs. Um, I do remember them um, putting some Versid internasal. They were trying to, to just give me anything that would work so they could move me. Um, I was on my hands and knees at this point in time, and that was the position I was stuck in, and all of the medicine just rolled out of my nose. And I remember looking at the EMS woman and going, I don't think it's supposed to come out like that. <laughs> um, so no pain medication was taking. Take. Um, taking any effect. Um, and I learned later, um, I had the bones I broke. Um, I broke my fr- the front of my right hip, the back of my right hip, that's the ischium. I broke my sacrum. I broke L4, L5. Um, my ankle, my thumb, um, my left thumb was shattered. I didn't think I was gonna regain the use of my right hand because of the nerve damage that happened during the crash, but about two years later, I regained the use of my right hand. Um now, those are the broken bones. I also had a head injury. I tore um, a muscle in my stomach. Um, trying to think what else I did. There's probably more. Um, oh, my sh- my uh, shoulder. Um, I damaged my shoulder. Um I think, oh, I think I broke a rib. um and i had massive road rash um all over the side of my body um, so that's so they were trying to move me and getting that being on the side of the road and and having them move me was probably it was extremely painful um one thing i learned in retrospect when i was going through different therapies afterwards um one of the guys i was working with said did you when all this was happening on the side of the road did you scream did you cry were you quiet what happened and i said hell yeah i was screaming i don't know if i was crying maybe i was but i was screaming um it was really horrible and he said good and i kind of looked at him like you know it sounded a little um masochistic and he said no no he said when trauma happens he said the more you can get out in the moment when it's happening lessens the um you know PTSD and the emotional effect that happens afterwards. So I guess that was a good thing. They eventually got me in the ambulance and you know how you kind of remember when bad things happen, you just have some kind of funny odd memories that stick in your head. I remember the EMS guy that was in the ambulance, he again still trying to get an IV into me. Um and he couldn't, um, reaches around to the side of the seat, and he pulls out a pack of Marlboro Reds, and he looks at me, and he goes, are these yours? <laughs> oh, like I actually started laughing. I was like, yeah, I'm out on my bike ride, decided to go over the handlebars, and yeah, could you hold on while I smoke my pack of Marlboro Reds? <laughs> and he And he shrugged his shoulders and goes, oh, must be from the last person. And I looked at him, and I said, do you think? Yeah, yeah, those aren't my cigarettes. So he said to me, Um, He said, do you mind if I cut your clothes off? And I, you know, and this is normal trauma procedure. And I said, please do it because I could feel my body was swelling. And again, in retrospect, he probably shouldn't have. It might have kept some of the um, bleeding and swelling down. But he, I remember him cutting my uh, bike shorts off. And I just blew up. (laughs) I blew up like a sausage. Um, So And I was like, wow, again, I don't think that's good. Um, But it felt really good to just have that constriction off. But I think I might have needed it at the time. So one of the other odd things that happened was the EMS, one of the EMS women called my husband. And because we didn't have my cell phone, I think we called from her cell phone. And she was trying to tell my husband what happened. And my husband thought that, somebody was calling and like playing a prank on him. Like he couldn't even fathom. He's like, who is this? Who are you? This isn't funny. And, and I heard this going on and I'm like, Bill, no one's playing a joke on you. No one's playing a joke on you. This is real. So she put the phone up to my mouth and I said, I'm okay. I, I wasn't, but I said, I'm okay. I'm alive. Um, and then he was in, I think he was in Fairfield that day. Um, and so he had to drive all the way back to West Hartford. So that's like, I don't know, two hour drive. Um, and my kids needed to be picked up from camp. A number of things needed to happen. So I'm in like crisis mode and I'm telling him, okay, I'm going to need you to come down to Hartford Hospital. That's where I'm going. But I need you to pick the kids up from camp. I said, call whoever you need to, you know, call my parents. I don't know what he did. Um, but he he made arrangements for, you know, to get the kids picked up, to get help, um, and to meet me, to meet me at the hospital. Um, I don't really remember going to the hospital. Um, I don't, but I do remember I was in a trauma room and it was, it was really bad because they're examining me and I have all these broken bones and I can hear them like you know, I have a medical background. I can hear them going through all the pain medications that they're trying to give me. I can hear I can hear the dosages. Um, they eventually gave me um, some ketamine, which they had not given me yet. And for those that have had ketamine, or, or medical professionals that give ketamine, it has to be titrated. Okay, titrated means you give it slowly. Okay, if you if you slam a dose of ketamine into somebody, it's called uh, putting somebody in a K hole. And it, and you're basically out of your flipping mind. So I heard them give me the ketamine, and then the next thing I it remember pay
1: good good money to get in that cave hole again
0: yeah, no, it was not a pleasant place um I all I can remember from that point on is there was a black woman holding my hand, and I was one of those annoying patients that said over and over again, "Who am I?" Where am I and why are you hurting me? That's all I could process. And then she would tell me and I would forget um, and I'd ask her again. And I don't know who she was, um, but all I can see is, you know, a black woman's hand holding my hand. Um, so they really messed me up with the ketamine. That was not good. Whoever did that medication needs to learn how to properly properly titrate this medication. Um, so whatever... From there, um, I needed to go get an MRI, and this is when it starts to get worse. Um, during the MRI, um, I did almost die. Um, I do not have any memory of this. The last memory I have is them trying to move me from, um, you know, the bed that I was on in the trauma room to the to the MRI. Um, I have no recollection of what happened to me um, in this MRI. So but the reason i know this happened was i want to say it was about a year later um i had to go get another mri and i remember i was at the gym that day and i felt really funny and i remember my heart was racing not cuz i was working out but like even just kind of walking around i felt funny and i finished my workout i went home and when i got home i think it's the first time i've ever had real ptsd and again i didn't know what was happening fortunately my my husband um, was in the military and he's well aware of PTSD. So I'm hyperventilating. I started crying. I started shaking. And I said to him, nothing's the matter. I, I don't know what's going on. And he looks at me and he says, well, aren't you supposed to go get an MRI today? I said, yeah. Um, but it's no big deal. And I probably need to cancel it because I can't show up like this. Right. And Bill says, Meg, you almost died in an MRI. You don't remember that? And that's when I was like, what are you talking about? I had no no idea. And I really didn't know how bad it was because really, I guess there really wasn't a need to talk about it. Um, but what he had told me was that when he finally got to the hospital, um, there was a wonderful social worker that was sitting with me the entire time until um, until Bill got there. And right when he had gotten there was just shortly after I had gotten out of this MRI. And he said that, I just kept telling him how badly they hurt me in the MRI and the social worker did tell him, you know, what happened to me, um, in the MRI and fill them in. Um, so, um, yeah, that was my first experience with, with PTSD. Um, I did not go to the MRI that day. We canceled that appointment. Um, and back to that, um, back to that social worker, I was really fortunate that day to have people that were able to hold space with me. The cool thing about this social worker was that she sat there and I'm in, I'm laying, I'm laying flat. You know, I have the, the uh, cervical collar on my neck. Um, I'm super banged up. She sat there and talked to me and coincidentally, she was also an ultra runner. Um, We talked about races. We talked about training. We talked about nothing that was going on because I was in such shock and if anybody's ever been in shock, it kind of makes your body, your, your body shakes almost sometimes it can shake like you're shivering. Right. And every time I shivered, it really hurt because of all the broken bones that I had. So she was keeping me calm and we were just talking about racing and training and all this stuff. And, you know, come full circle. I ran. What's the, um, what's the out and back race? I'm forgetting it in New Hampshire ghost train. Um, I ran ghost train a couple of years later and I saw her at the race and it was really cool. We actually ran together. Um, so super, super grateful to her. She's like a superhero in my mind. Um, so they admitted me. Um, they were trying, they admitted me to the hospital. I was in the hospital for, I don't know, over a week. Um, and I wanted it was horrible. It was horrible in the hospital. And I understood for the first time in my life what it's like not to be able to advocate for yourself, um, not to be able to say what you need. Um, and that's very unlike my personality. Um, but I was just so beaten down I couldn't and um they kept so I I'm, you know, I'm plant-based. Um, I also have celiac. So in you know, I'm a picky eater in general, right? But the hospital kept bringing me food that I couldn't eat. Like they'd bring me like a ham and cheese sandwich on white bread. Right. And they knew my dietary restrictions, but I just wasn't eating. And so I, I didn't eat for days because I just couldn't say like what was going on. Right. Um, and finally this one nurse comes in and she says, She says, well, I noticed you haven't been eating for the past couple of days. What's up? And I and I showed her the sandwich. I said, I can't eat this stuff. Plus, it was gross. Um, But I said, I I can't have wheat. I have celiac and I also don't eat meat. And she goes, well, why are they serving you this stuff? And I was like, well, that's I don't know. That's why. So she said, hold on. She said, what do you want to eat? She goes, name it. Name anything. I don't even know what I said. She called the kitchen and says, you know, you know, please bring blah, blah, blah up to this room. And that's, that's basically how I started eating again. It just took somebody, took somebody to step in and, and say that for me. Um, after, you know, about a week or so, they started PT with me in the hospital and they said, when you can take 10 steps, um, and this is with a walker, when you can take 10 steps, you can go home. Now um, to go home, I have to say like there was a hospital bed in my living room and all the medical equipment was set up um, in my house. And so come hell or high water, I'm taking those fucking 10 steps. Cause I want out of the hospital. I don't care how bad it hurts. I don't care if my back's broken. I don't care. <laughs> um, so I took those 10 steps and it was one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to do. And I was like, God, okay, I can get out of the stupid hospital now. And all right. So the PT lady comes back a couple hours later and she goes, I'm really sorry. She goes, I learned you have to take 25 steps in order to be able to leave. I was was like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) I said, well, can we count the 10 steps I already took and just add 15? She goes, no, you need to take 25 consecutive steps. So, again, just every single piece of motivation that I had, I took those 25 steps, thought I was going to die. And I'm like, okay, get me the hell out of this hospital. Okay. Um, In the meantime, Bill and my mother were setting up all of the durable medical equipment um, because I couldn't use a bathroom. I couldn't dress myself. um, I couldn't sleep in a regular bed. I had to be in certain positions. Um, They got all that set up again. I would not have been able to do that without them. So um, from there, I go home. You want me to keep going or you have questions?
1: Uh, no, I mean, so for this point, this is all, all very almost clinical type stuff, right? Like yeah. this happened here, <laughs> this happened here.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, so now you're home. I, I, at this point, I think I came and visited mm-hmm. you, um, here is where i think it's important to start talking about stuff now with consultations with your doctors and such what what was their prognosis for you as an athlete and what were your thoughts and feelings based upon that and also based not just based upon what they're telling you, but based upon what you're seeing and feeling and how, how your body is (sighs) acting in this world.
0: Yeah, this is the hard part. So when something happens like that, so that was a crash that was 30 seconds that literally changed my entire life, right? It's amazing how Quickly, life can change, and life is very fragile, but we function under the assumption that things are just always going to stay the same. Um, I made a career um, out of trauma. Um, I'm a trauma specialist, um, you know, I'm a paramedic and I'm a, th- I'm a counseling therapist specializing in trauma. And I just know all too well how fragile things are. And I remember one of the lessons that I've taken out of that is I tend to move at such a frenetic pace. Okay. That's my, it's almost a baseline, right? I just want to get a lot of stuff done. And I remember after that crash, I was like, I am never going to move at that frenetic pace again. It's painful. Um, it's painful always moving around and not being present. Um, so that was one life lesson that hit me right away. And I have to say, I've carried that life lesson with me to today. I mean, I get busy, I get nutty. Um, but if I start to notice myself in that crazy, frenetic, fast-moving, um, whirling dervish mode, I stop. And I still remember what it feels like being on the side of the road. Um, because I couldn't move. It was taken away from me. Um, I The doctor... so. When you have trauma happen, um, you have a different doctor for each part of your body. So I had a hip ortho. I had a hand ortho. I had a back ortho. Um, the hip the hip ortho told me that I was never going to walk unassisted again for the rest of my life. And I think I looked at him and said, fuck you. Um, that was not something I was willing to accept. Um, and in retrospect... I couldn't process it. I did not have the emotional capability to process what it would mean to not be able to walk on my own. Um, So what I did was I pushed myself really fucking hard. Um, And when we go through trauma, we survive however we have to do. Whether it's, you know, whether it's a sexual assault, a car accident, broken bones. People often look back at how you handle it and go, oh God, it would have been, I should have done this. I should have done that. I know that my push, my drive, I mean, I worked really fucking hard. Um, that drive to survive was based in a fear that he was right, that I would never be able to walk again unassisted. Um and that if these doctors had their way with me, um, because of all the pain, pain medications I was on, I would be an opioid addict um, stuck on my couch for the rest of my life. And that fear was so intense that it drove me to work really hard. Um, and that's when, um, and, I, and I don't remember, so I was in that hospital bed for three months in, in my living room. I could not walk up and down stairs. I couldn't, any bathing, um, all that, like getting dressed. My kids had to help me get dressed. It was really, really humbling. Um, and, but I had no choice. I felt like I had to be strong to survive and, and live. Um, in retrospect, maybe I should have been more gentle with myself. Maybe I should have, um, been kinder, but I did not have room in my life for that level of softness. Right. Um, one of the things I remember doing, I had one of those, you know, those triangle bars, um, up above my head. That's how I had to, that's how I had to sit up because I couldn't use my back. Now, mind you, I did have, I did have a, you know, messed up shoulder and and ribs and stomach muscles, but what I would do is I would do um, pull-ups on that triangle bar to just make sure I was keeping my arms strong. Um, when I was on my walker, I would take the weight off my legs and do dips. Um, this was, and again, I just needed, it wasn't about the identity at that point, that the identity of being a runner, of being a super competitive um, you know woman on this planet that comes in later but at the time I just wanted to get out of that bed and just be able to walk and sit like regular people could because I couldn't sit I had to lay in that stupid had to lay in that stupid bed um we had um again I was not able to care for myself we had a big whiteboard um in the living room that had all the medications um that I had to take when I had to take, I all, when I had to take them, I also had to have daily shots um, in my stomach um, to prevent uh, blood clots. Um, and it's, I can give myself shots. I mean, I could put an IV in my own arm if I, you know, if I needed to, but I was so broken. I had to have other people, you know, other people do the shots. I wasn't strong enough, you know, to to give myself a shot. It sounds kind of, and I, when I say strong, I don't mean physical strength. It was just too scary. Um, to give myself a shot at that point in time so um so it was really fucking scary I needed to survive and for anybody else who has gone through trauma what I want to say is whatever you have to do in that moment to survive that's okay you did it you survived and that's how I look at it right now is whether it was good whether it was bad um That's what I needed to do just to make it through, you know, to make it through that point in time.
1: So how long was this survival period and when did that change to (laughs) Um, the next, next phase?
0: Probably two years, um, because, oh God, about a year later, um, I did, um, I did hundred K, um, and I was training for the Infinitus 888 kilometer at the time. Um, and I remember when I finished that hundred K, Oh God, that race sucked so bad. Um, it was a, I think it like an eight mile road loop that we just had to repeat in the same direction. And when I finished that hundred K, I felt my hips hurt so bad that I felt. I almost wondered if they broke again, but I was so determined to finish that race. I needed it. I needed, I needed that identity of this is what I do. I run super long distances and God damn it. I was going to get it done. Um, I did the 888 kilometer in over 10 days. I'd have to look at my exact mileage. It was low 300s. Um, I think I did 315, 318 miles. Um, I did not do the full 888 kilometers. I didn't, um, and after that race, what I noticed was my, well, actually I noticed it during the 888, um, my ankles and my Achilles really hurt and they would get very swollen and, and very, very, uh, painful. What I learned in retrospect, um, cause it probably took me about another six. I thought I had an Achilles. I thought I had like tendonitis, like Achilles tendonitis. Um, I finally got, I finally went to an ortho and got x-rays, um, you know, of my, of my ankles. And it turns out that I had a, (laughs) I had a broken, um, shard of heel bone, um, ankle bone, whatever, I don't know, that was cutting into my Achilles since the accident. Um, so I was essentially running on broken bones and this bone, um, cut through my Achilles, probably about fifty percent of the way, um, and in my other foot, that was in my left foot. In my right foot, the compensation um, that I was doing um, to, you know, to deal with the pain in my left foot, um, you know, caused significant damage to my ankles and my Achilles. So that survival mode was so strong that, um, and I was holding on to that identity that that you mentioned. That I was fucking running on, um, running on a shard of bone that was cutting into my Achilles. Um, That sucked. (laughs) I don't really know what to say about that. Like that realization, um, that realization that wow, something is really wrong with my ankles from the accident. Still, you know, a couple years later, was was big.
1: So now you have. I damaged Achilles, um, and for you at that point, discovering that, and was this, was this the lowest point at, in the whole, like, process, right? Like, you had initial trauma, and that is, Mm -hmm. like you said, survival mode, but this is now two years post. Yeah two maybe um, at this point maybe it's like three years post now we get yeah to
0: yeah trying, no, to, it, trying
1: to rectify that
0: that wasn't the lowest points like the lowest point comes you know comes a couple years later I mean but up until that point that's a good question what was the lowest point? I think the lowest point um for me was being on the side of the road, with the 16-year-old girl. And she held space and she protected me. Like I I don't know how somebody that young could do that. But then when I saw those dads in the way they were afraid to come near me, like I knew my body was so mangled that it was scaring that it was scaring these other people and only this teenage girl. That that's when I realized how bad it was. Um that was the lowest point so far. Um because when the when the ortho and i'm in new hampshire by this time when the ortho told me and i saw and i saw the actually i saw the x-rays of the of the bone shard it almost it felt like validation okay cuz i hurt so badly and when i saw how bad my ankles were it was almost validation like you're not crazy megan your ankles are really messed up cause I had tried everything. Um, so no, I was like, okay, let's, um, let's operate. Let's, um, let's do what we have to do to fix my body. So I still had, I still had false hope (laughs) at that point in time.
1: So now going into this, I guess, first surgery on your Achilles and ankle,
0: Yeah, he, he wanted, um, so both, both ankles need to be operated on. Um, he, he wanted to do one at a time and that really pissed me off. I'm like, if you're going to operate on me, you may as well do both. And he said, no, it'll be too painful. And I'm thinking you have no idea what I've been through, but he's the doctor. He wins. We did one at a time. Um, we did my left first and he took out the bone shard, um, repaired or repaired the tendon. Um, the next surgery was probably about a month later where he repaired, um, where he repaired the tendon on the right side. And this is where, this is kind of where it gets hard because I had, I think I've had seven surgeries in total. Um, seven or eight, I've lost count. Um, The procedures I've had in the middle, countless, I I could never tell you, Um, you know, but my ankles basically won't heal. Um, My left, um, my left is actually okay. So I've had my left ankle operated on two times. This is where it gets kind of fuzzy, but my right ankle wouldn't heal in the sense that Um, I have restricted movement in my right ankle, so my foot can't flex properly. So, um, I don't know. Let's say a normal ankle, like think of somebody squatting. What does that go down to? Like 120, 130 degrees of a bend? Um, My ankle was stuck at about a 60 degree. Okay, so I couldn't even get to 90 degrees. I couldn't walk. Um, And... So the doctor operated on my right foot again, and he cleared out a lot of scar tissue. Um, He assessed the nerve damage. And I think this was my fifth surgery. Um, And what he said to me is he, and I, (laughs) I remember one of the nurses telling me how pissed the surgeon was that he couldn't fix me. Um, during she said I'd never seen him that upset during a surgery but apparently even with and this um this orthopedic surgeon is also an athlete you know strong guy um apparently he had his full body weight on you know pushing my right foot to flex and he just could not get it to move um but the issue was if <clears throat> he took out any more scar tissue a lot of the scar tissue is wrapped around the nerve bundle in my, you know, around my Achilles. And so if he's like a half a millimeter off and slices one of these nerves, effectively I have a dead foot and then I need an amputation. Um, So I have to make a decision what to do. Um, And it, the pain that I had been walking around with and running <laughs> exercise, I mean, cause I'm still trying to do what I do. The pain that I was living with, if anybody lives with chronic pain, you just know it becomes a normal baseline for you. It just, you just live with constant suck. Um, I learned over the course of all these surgeries, I cannot take opioids. They make me very sick, um, which they do for about half of the population. Not only do they make me vomit, um, but it speeds my heart rate up. So finding pain medications, um, and and we did, um, eventually I settled on a gabapentin, um, which is a little bit frustrating because I had to take it three times a day. Um, it's not like a normal pain medication where you can take as needed. Um, I could not take gabapentin right now and do the work that I do because it makes you fuzzy. But it, it did relieve the pain. Um, So I had a choice. Um, I could have another surgery and risk um, my leg essentially dying in nerve damage um, and a subsequent amputation. Or um, I talked to another surgeon in uh, New York about getting an external fixator um, on my leg. Um, So an external fixator, you know when people get like rods and pins inside their leg you know, to, to fix a bone that's been shattered. Um, I have this on the outside of my leg. So from my knee all the way to my foot, I have two separate devices that are connected. Um, I think I counted, there were 24 pins that were sticking out of my leg. Um, and essentially I could not step on this foot for three months. Um, it was absolutely positively horrible. Um, I had to do, I had to tighten um, and loosen the device um, three times a day and do PT to keep my leg moving. We also had to tighten the device daily. And what it did was it forced my foot into the dorsiflexion that it would not go into on its own. So I moved it like a millimeter every day, um, just eventually flexing it. Um, If anybody's ever had an external fixator, um, it is extremely, painful um i i couldn't you know so i had to, i had to sleep with this thing on um i essentially was in the walker again remember the remember the ortho that told me i would never walk again unassisted so again i'm using a walker um i was dependent on everybody else yet again to help me get dressed um to help me shower um I couldn't get myself food because, again, I'm balancing on one leg, you know, all the time, um, and I had to use a walker. So, it, um, so it kind of brought me back full circle, and it was a very low point for me because I was here in my house for three months, um, again, and desperately, desperately required. Um, desperately required the help of all the people around me to essentially, you know, help me survive, get me to the appointments that I needed to go to. Um, At one point, the, um, I had an infection um, in a couple of the pins. um, So I had to go on some heavy antibiotics. Um, It was exhausting. I lost a ton of weight, um, ton of muscle mass. um, And I felt like I was just sort of like, wasting away and I was like that's it I'm just gonna die on this couch or just die in the bed
1: so from an outsider's perspective who's been there the whole time and now I'm not there daily like Bill um but I would say that at the point where you decided what you were doing with your foot this last time was probably the lowest point at least that I saw Mm
0: -hmm. it Now, Mm -hmm.
1: I I wasn't on the side of the road, the initial trauma, but I think you dealt with that in a way that it wasn't, it wasn't emotionally taxing in the way this was. This was a decision point that you were,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you were talking about. Because
0: amputation was on the table. Like literally, am I going to lose my leg? Yeah. If this, if this fixator doesn't work, if this last surgery doesn't work, we were going to have to do a below the knee amputation and. It was to the point where I've looked at prostheses, (laughs) Um, you know, the surgeon described what the surgery would be, you know, and what it would mean um, if I lost my leg. Yeah. We
1: got lost again.
0: Taught us to do what we're told And on the 23rd Have a favor to ask of you. If you would go to the app that you use to listen to our podcast, please follow and subscribe to our show. This really helps us. And it also really helps you because you will never miss an episode. While you're there, if you could also leave us a five-star rating and a great review, these type of things are super helpful for us because they help our ratings. Last but not least, share this with a friend. There's somebody out there who hasn't heard this and I'm sure would appreciate the share. Thanks, everybody.